Well, hi there, and welcome to this episode of NetSport Radio. I'm Al Kingsley, a CEO of NetSport Group and a big EdTech fan. And I'm really, really pleased today to be joined uh, for our recording with Frank Catalano. Uh, Frank has a long history as a journalist, tech and EdTech area. He's an independent EdTech industry strategy consultant, as well as being an analyst and columnist for EdSurge, amongst others. Frank, welcome to the show. Al, delighted to be here. Thank you. Real pleasure to have you here. And I was having a good review through some of the articles that you've written. Uh, and there's a real, as I like to say, cornucopia of topics there, but you've covered an awful breadth of different EdTech topics. I'm sure we're going to have fun discussing perhaps just a few of them today, if we may. Um, perhaps the most interesting ones that are quite recent, given what's been uh, the, the sort of seismic shift that we've seen in the education space, uh, has been around a couple of strands. So one, um, you did some very interesting article about challenges in terms of teachers leaving the profession. And I was quite keen to unpick that with you, if I may, uh, particularly as we've seen such pressures on well-being recently for staff. And I'm sure that may be one of the drivers. But for those listening, could you perhaps just expand a bit on some of your findings in that area, Frank? Sure. And I'll just simply uh, offer a disclaimer, which is that I have not personally conducted this research, but part of my job as a columnist for EdSearch is to look for interesting studies, surveys, and analyses, and then pick out the stuff that may be of interest or maybe sort of counterintuitive sometimes. And when it comes to teachers, um, Rand Corporation did a pretty fascinating study about why teachers are leaving the profession before retirement. And they did it at you know, during the pandemic to figure out what was what was going on. And this is US-based, I'll be very clear mm. about that. So there are probably some distinctions around the world, but among the, uh, the reasons um, had to do with COVID-19 and the pandemic. And one of the top five reasons had to do with the challenges of remote instruction. So it was pretty fascinating to see that uh, a number of what Rand calls teacher leavers, which is an interesting term, but people who leave before retirement were doing so um, problems with remote instruction. And it was much more uh, prevalent among teachers over the age of 40, like three times more prevalent among teachers over the age of 40. So that was uh, key. Other reasons teachers left early and left the profession had to do with that were non-technologically related, where the uh, the pay versus the risks and the stress of uh, you know the pandemic, childcare yeah. during the pandemic, health their own health condition or the health condition potentially of a loved one. Uh, who they were living with or see frequently. So the pandemic has had some impact on why teachers have left the profession or are considering leaving. That's really interesting, Frank. And do you think it was a case of fresh reasons or that some of these were an accelerator? I mean, one topic that I talk about quite regularly, and it's obviously a hot topic, is about developing teacher confidence. And of course, digital has just amplified that slightly. Um, so I wonder you think back to um, often referred to the Mandinac and Klein research about the four stages of teacher confidence building through, whether whether that was kind of the catalyst that the, the, the digital challenges kind of amplified that? Well, I think that, okay, first off, the teacher shortage that is talked about in the US and in other cases worldwide is not new. It's been around for a long time. And so this is just one reason, or as you mentioned, potentially an accelerant uh, as to why teachers are leaving the profession. There's also fewer teachers entering colleges of education or seeing it as a viable career, potentially because of low pay, you know, especially in the US. Uh, so I wouldn't say, I think this basically is a way for teachers to have another reason to leave if they were already thinking of leaving or potentially retiring. That said, 
um, there is also some counterintuitive indications, much as there were during the Great Recession that began in 2008, 2009, that some teachers are hanging on in the profession a bit longer during the pandemic because of economic reasons. They may which, not be able to find another job at this point. Absolutely, which, which, which makes sense. But I think internationally, certainly this side of the Atlantic, we've seen for some years now, there's been earlier and earlier departures of senior leaders. Headships become less attractive with all the additional pressures that frankly are applied across the teaching profession, not just the senior leadership, but also that kind of overall continual change in perhaps the expectations on a teacher's role, the kind of breadth of extra responsibilities that get added without any capacity or time being added to reflect that. So I wonder that's probably a, an amplification of it. There was certainly an interesting uh, survey that came out, and I can't cite the source of it, but it's, it's very recent, uh, which indicated that uh, teachers felt they were spending on average an extra five hours a day when it came to remote instruction, uh, doing all the things required to make a remote instruction work or following up on students who don't check in or whatever. So it, it is an accelerant in that case. Uh, also, you know, you, you talked about the, the comfort with digital instruction and digital tools. And there was a very interesting report put out by GBH Education, which is a nonprofit public broadcaster in the, in the Boston area of the US. And um, they indicated that teachers who thought they were confident using digital media for instruction before the pandemic or as the pandemic began, that percentage actually dropped as the pandemic wore on. It went from 77% to 66% because suddenly it wasn't like ed tech was optional. EdTech was the only thing you could use. And if you were confident using it occasionally, you know, great. Uh, it's like I can, I can put air in my car's tires, but if I am suddenly the only mechanic on my car, my confidence in taking care of that car is going to drop dramatically. Yeah, it's an interesting mindset because, of course, one of the things we've seen around EdTech adoption in the broader sense is that gradual confidence that becomes more and more embedded within within the, the sort of the, the classroom pedagogy but it's always about choice where when and where it's appropriate rather than finding a way that you have to use it all the time um, and that's that was an interesting one the other strand I just wanted to kind of pick up on that point with you was we also saw like most things that there was a kind of a bit of a rush to the to the the cloud in many cases but a rush to new solutions to help mitigate that immediate flip over to when the pandemic arrived and so one of the challenges I think a lot of educators face was rather than becoming master of a small number of tools, there was almost an expectation to kind of be um, jack of all trades on a real portfolio of solutions, which kind of, again, amplified that problem further, I guess. Yeah, it's a, it was a real mess. And there is a, a company in the U.S. called Learn Platform, which basically provides a way to monitor usage of ed tech products in a school district, a public school district. And they noticed that uh, over the, as the pandemic grew between March of 2020 through the end of 2020, the number of tools in use by a single US public school district grew from 952 to 1,327. I have those written down because those are pretty stunning numbers. It's That's a huge increase. And so, I mean, some of them had like 70 different applications for, uh, you know, maths or, uh, or reading, literacy. So it's, and some had more than one student information system. Some had more than one LMS in their district. So you're a teacher and you're going, first off, I have to engage these students somehow and I have to make sure they're showing up. Oh yes, and I have to teach them. And now I have to learn a plethora of new tools. It's, it, it does definitely impact confidence. 
And it's a little bit off topic, but of course that then opened up a fresh conversation about data protection and privacy, the kind of quick, rapid adoption of new technologies. And, and as we have across, certainly within the UK, our normal standards start with creating a, a data protection impact assessment, thinking about what data is being shared, who's got access to it, how long it's there. But that kind of accelerant, of course, for a lot of schools, that became a little bit more of, shall we say, a fast track process in some cases. I would say that there was a fair amount of prayer involved in the early days, that nothing horrible would go wrong that can't be reversed, and a lot of trust that the tools that they're using would not leak data if they didn't have a chance to review the privacy and security policies. But it did lead to a number of states starting to look in the U.S. at, um, at legislation having to do with cybersecurity and data privacy. And uh, COSIN, the Consortium for School Networking, which is a big association uh, in the US of district technology leadership, uh, started tracking bills in 2020 and found a huge increase in the number of cybersecurity bills that were introduced having to do with education at all levels. Only one was actually passed in Alabama on cybersecurity, but there was right. a lot more interest. And I think suddenly the pandemic, if there is, you know, an upside to its impact on education, one of them is suddenly the attention being given more to data security and privacy because everything suddenly is digital and not just some things. Absolutely. I think it's, it's well, there's been quite a few where um, for the wrong reasons with the pandemic, it's been a catalyst for much broader conversation, both on, as you say, data privacy, but also just in the broader sense of digital adoption, digital strategies, the future direction, um, and being aware of some of those technologies and, and how they might might have lasting impact. I'm interested from the research that you, and, and the article that you were writing on, on that topic, kind of what kind of training is do you think was needed in terms of adopting some of those, um, those lessons learned? I mean, educators are one of the most reflective pro professions in terms of being able to actually identify things that work well and, and how to take those forward. So just in terms of how they might translate into kind of learning our lessons and getting the, the benefit from them in the future? Well, as any educator will say, there's a huge difference between product training and professional development. And I think that uh, everybody was so desperately trying to learn how to use these 1,327 tools per average district, uh, that uh, professional development, the real key professional development on how to integrate uh, the technology into instruction kind of went by the wayside. It was all hit or miss because we were in an emergency remote instruction scenario. Uh, Rand Corporation did another survey where they basically talked to district leaders and the heads of charter management organizations in the U.S. and they found that 69% uh, cited a moderate or great need for using technology tools to provide health, high quality instruction. They needed some kind of, teachers needed help in doing that. That is improving over time. I mean, there's anecdotal information that a number of school districts took the summer and also part of the fall to do these really intense um, uh, seminars for their instructors remotely on how to pedagogically do appropriate stuff with the technology. But that usually is limit, a limited set of tools, right? You can't do that for everything you use. No, but it's interesting because... I I first saw it from probably March last year that the first the first regions that really started looking at remote learning was for us was the independent and international schools in the Middle East. They were the first ones hit by the pandemic, and, and being international schools, their their funding was such that they had greater access to technology for their children, and their initial flex was to try and replicate the school day. <clears throat> 
at home and, and actually model that structured five or six periods a day. And that's what they delivered. And then that kind of a, adjusted based on teacher confidence and also recognizing that actually it was, it was very much a case of less is more and that it was not practical to have that kind of structure sustained consistently. And actually that's when the conversation that many of us talk about, that blended discussion about how much is synchronous versus asynchronous, how we break things down really became. And again, that, that race to all those solutions that you talked about, I've kind of seen a flex back which is actually we now need to sanitize this a little bit and actually build competency in those core kind of infrastructural products that will give us the most benefit and not try and run too fast on some of this you know and we've seen much of the same in the u.s that the fact that a lot of teachers just basically because of the the pandemic and the urgency uh just basically took Zoom and said, let's replicate the remote classroom. You know, let's replicate what we're doing in class remotely and let's burn out students and let's burn out ourselves by trying to do eight hours a day or six hours a day of instruction. And um, doesn't work that well. I mean, Clayton Christensen Institute, which is really well known uh, globally for its work, uh, early work on uh, blended learning uh, and blended learning models. They used to have a kind of an dizzying, eye-popping eight or nine different potential models years ago when they first introduced the concept. They um, they re- issued a report, uh, Tom Arnett there did uh, during the pandemic, and uh, they found out that 84% of teachers they surveyed in the U.S. just simply provided live instruction over video. I mean, that was it. That was the model. And uh, 42% of teachers, their daily hours of online instruction resembled a normal day. So that's about half very few used a curriculum that was designed for remote online instruction and and allowed for asynchronous instruction. So I think the comfort level with that uh, needs to increase. And I think it has been increasing, although we don't have enough data points over time to show how fast it's increasing. No, absolutely. And and obviously Clayton Christensen, some of of the books, the Blended Workbook, for example, which is kind of the companion book, has got some great, albeit pre-COVID, some great examples in terms of moving that direction about that that kind of not not sticking to a one size fits all and actually that differentiation based on the cohort i was interested do you think there are any trends that from from that perspective of what we learned in terms of the, the online learning that you see as more likely to become embedded moving forwards than others well I, I think we are not going to see virtual remote online instruction ending after the pandemic wanes and we are all of course hoping for the pandemic to wane i want to be very clear about that nobody's happy about the situation really but I think that we're going to see a continuation. Uh, there's been demand from students. There's been demand from certain parents uh, that in some cases, in certain situations, online instruction is better for their students, their kids. Um, we will also probably see a continuation of hybrid instruction in some ways. And that I think it's going to be the long tail is hybrid because it's going to take a while to get schools back to normal. Uh, again, Rand Corporation, different study, uh, did a report that and then this was, I think, December or January. So it's it's a little dated. Uh, but um, because this is such a moving target, politics play into what you reopen to uh, in many places. But they found out that uh, uh, basically one in five U.S. school districts expected to offer some kind of fully virtual instruction even after the pandemic ends due to student and parent demands. And one in 10 expected to continue doing some kind of hybrid instruction. So it's not going away. Um, it will pull back, but it's not going away. Now, I, I think that certainly resonates this side. I think whilst we're all looking into that sense of normality, 
there are some strands. There's a word that often doesn't get particularly well received over here, that the catch-up terminology, because frankly, at the moment, our focus on catch-up is about well-being and that social, emotional, mental health focus on getting our learners back on. But in terms of some of the learning loss, there are lessons learned in terms of that additional ability to deliver remotely and even to create those offline exemplars and resources that, that young people can add into. And the example that often gets discussed here would be around um, before our exam season in, in this time of year, typically um, in the UK, we would have students coming in for revision classes into school in their holidays to do catch up. And of course, the question is, why would they come in? Why would the staff come in during their holidays when we could be delivering it effectively online now? So there's a kind of a change of mindset of saying, actually, that blend of adaptability is is definitely something there. Can I just pick you up on one thing? We were talking about teacher skills and confidence and that being perhaps one of the, the accelerants. Um, another narrative that's been discussed is about whether we need to look further up the chain and actually start thinking about digital skills as part of initial teacher training, actually before arrival in the classroom, and that actually many of our new teachers aren't necessarily being given the, the skills and tools to, to adopt some of the technologies that we're now looking at. In a previous uh, career, I was I worked for Pearson Education, and uh, I, I worked with their uh, teacher certification testing business, and worked a lot with colleges of education. Um, colleges of education tend to be slow to change, and I'm trying to word this very carefully, Al, but they, they tend to be set in a lot of theory and um, to, to some point, at least back then, practice, but not necessarily the cutting edge of practice. And even though many of us as consumers would not consider digital cutting edge anymore, it is just part of our day-to-day -day life, uh, I think when it comes to colleges of education, it's still considered cutting edge in many ways. So that's a, a gentle way of saying that um, educators who go into colleges of education, or, or sorry, potential educators, uh, may not be getting the kind of instruction they need on how to, to make sure that digital techniques are pedagogically sound. I think that's going to change as a result of the pandemic, uh, especially when you consider the fact that there has been, in several cases, reported decreases at colleges of education and incoming in interest and in incoming classes. So it has to be made more modern. But how do you do that when you consider that educational institutions generally in higher education are slow to change, not just colleges of education? So this is going to be kind of a shock to their system, I think. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's an interesting, there's a perception that um, any kind of online learning is, um, is, is second best to face-to-face -face learning. And, and I would... I'd struggle to argue against that in terms of mainstream schooling, in terms of that teacher-student relationship and the dynamic that happens in the classroom. But when you think of it rather than being second best, but complementary to, it starts to make much more sense. And actually, when people start to think of that as being a value add, there's a potential where that hopefully will be seen as more integrated, particularly as we start moving up the educational scale to older children and, and into you know post-mainstream education, that there has to be that opportunity. We've seen many universities in the UK have started to embrace that and recognize that actually the commercial drivers are that you can have a bigger cohort if you've actually got that that blended model and you've not got all your students on campus at all times. I, I would not call what uh, the reaction to several uh, always online universities, which were online before the pandemic here in the US, like Western Governors University. I wouldn't call it glee but there was sort of an I told you so about it that it can work. 
with certain types of learners, such as those who are trying to structure, adult learners trying to structure their continuing education or their advanced degrees uh, around a day job or around some other thing. And so competency-based learning, I think suddenly is going to become uh, a richer area for adults after the pandemic. Because what we've really just seen is everybody has been forced to become familiar with online learning, whether they want to or not. Absolutely. So it's been it's it's been sort of like uh, moving to a to a country where you don't speak the language and you have no clue. You are either going to learn as much of the language as you can to get by, or you are going to have to you're going to fail. And that's and this is the, the language of digital learning. So for some people, take to it immediately and love it. And I think those are the people who will help push forward things that work for others like them. Others will say, you know, this was a great experiment. I can say, can you find the bathroom, you know, in, uh, in another language? Uh, but I, I, I'm never going to be comfortable with this. So you are going to see a, a wide range, but this, this sort of forced immersion is going to, I think, be a benefit for also making the programs better that are online. I think that's a really salient point. I mean, one thing that I've seen over here being involved in, in, in multi-academy trust leadership is conversations around reflecting on a digital strategy for our schools has been ongoing for some years. And often the narrative pushback from senior leadership in schools has been about priorities and we don't have time for it right now. There are other more pressing challenges. And then lo and behold, a pandemic arrives and, and 12 months down the line, we say, you know, this has been the busiest time ever in our schools and we've had to deal with all these health and safety risks and logistical challenges. We've also managed to talk about our digital technology and strategy as well. So it's almost evidencing that that thing that you felt maybe didn't add much value, now we've seen it's actually got a place and the narrative has been amplified, which I guess is what certainly many of us were hoping would be the case, where it's appropriate. Yeah, I think the biggest concern that, that I still have, uh, I mean, I think that there are some benefits post-pandemic to the emergency instruction but uh, and it being online but the biggest concerns i have is what about the missing students what about the students who never got online or were only sporadically online for all sorts of really good reasons that need to be addressed it helped highlight the home situation of many students um, the other concern i have is you know what is you know you and i have commonly heard the term learning loss what it really is is unfinished learning, or if I want to get really technical, uh, it is the anticipated gain in learning from year to year with a cohort of students that does not, that was not realized. It was sort of the expected gain that was not realized traditionally. A little long, learning loss is a bit more uh, marketing oriented, yes. but... but we, we we keep it much simpler in the in the UK. We just call it the it's referred to as the Progress Eight measure for, for children. So when they're in secondary school, it's really about exactly that 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 anticipated learning gain from their baseline when they enter the secondary school to the I point where they take that. their exams. And, and we have the Progress Eight and the Attainment Eight, which is the actual grades that they achieved. But but you're right in that sense of of how much lost progress has there been? Of, of course, for some of our younger learners. They've acquired different skills, maybe not the ones that were originally planned in the curriculum, but actually project work and greater engagement with their parents. They've, dis they've developed language skills and, and independent skills and, and other things that have been kind of, you know, an unexpected bonus as well. So we look for those. But you're right about that, that digital divide, that, that sense of how, how schools mitigated for those young people that didn't have access to technology. Uh, and, and I think across the country, we've certainly seen that that's been reflected based on socioeconomic factors, and, and that's a bigger one. But I do think maybe there's a place that technology can play in, in terms of how we deliver 
some of that um, anticipated learning loss, you know, or, or that catch up, if you want to call it that, in terms of, you know, are, are there solutions that can support in terms of personalized learning and getting children back on track once we've addressed their, their social emotional needs? I think there are, and I think the, the I'm going to bring this a little bit full circle to what we originally talked about, which was teachers leaving the profession. Uh, it is very hard right now, and I, this is anecdotal, but I've talked to several superintendents in the U.S. to find qualified math teachers. It is very hard to find them, um, and and yet the biggest uh, amount of unfinished learning or lack of anticipated progress is in math across grades K through eight. It's in reading, it's higher in the much lower grades where kids are learning to reading, but it's, it's not as high as math. Math tends to, in all the studies, be worse. So you have the situation where kids are behind in their math progress. Math teachers are hard to find, qualified math teachers. You're really, your only solution is either put them in front of an unqualified teacher or try to find some digital supports and scaffolds to help them. Absolutely, Frank. And I think it's an interesting one because we keep talking about what we keep wanting to add as responsibilities for, for, for educators and for teachers. But we, we rarely talk about what we can take away. And, and sometimes we want to be looking at technology, not to free up time so a teacher can do something else, but to free up time so a teacher isn't overworked. And actually, in terms of their well-being and their effort and energy they can put into teaching and learning, you get that other gain. Uh, I mean, certainly it's, it's a it's a hot topic without, again, going off on a bit of a tangent. You know, there are AI or machine learning based solutions. Some come with that label and perhaps aren't quite as much as they claim and others perhaps are. But absolutely, those technologies are very much focused in terms of some of the maths, the STEM subjects and sciences in terms of um, being great for retrieval practice and for personalized learning. There's also a number of consumer solutions that have been used during the pandemic by uh, by parents at home with their kids that were never designed to be used in the classroom. And some of them are interactive voice solutions. Uh, there's a company in Seattle, it's a startup uh, called Bamboo Learning that, um, and, and just for full disclosure, I live in Seattle. So that's the only reason I, I actively know about them in Seattle, Washington. But the um, uh, a company founded by somebody who was responsible for the Kindle and the Echo devices at Amazon. And it is purely interactive voice for young kids on, you know, math is one of the subjects. So yeah. I think you're finding a, a fair amount of crossover now with devices or tools that were never designed to be used in the school because interactive voice can be very disruptive in a school and their privacy issues, suddenly being used as part of core instruction by parents trying to help their kids catch up. So, and I think that's another thing you're going to see that will continue past pandemic is a number of these consumer education solutions will continue to gain ground because parents out of desperation have had to use them and suddenly realize, hey, these might work for, for my student going forward. Are, are there any other trends, Frank, that you'd identify for tech that you're ex sort of excited about post-pandemic within the education space? Well, it's hard to be excited about back office technology, but I would say that is a trend. And by that, I mean what, what's happening that is used in the administrative office of schools. Uh, everything from student information systems to learning management systems. There's been a lot of, if you will, creakiness exposed in how robust the systems are and how well they connect to each other. I think that's sort of a hidden area where there will be a lot mm -hmm. of anticipated uh, gains. Um, there is a, a UK-based um, um, market research firm in EdTech, Future Source Consulting, that yep. recently uh, uh, talked about this and what they have been seeing behind the scenes. And you know, one thing that they have primarily seen is more interest in 
SISs. They say 48% of U.S. districts say that their SIS doesn't meet their data management and storage needs. And, big surprise, asset management solutions for schools and districts because they have all these connected devices and they don't necessarily know where they are or what's on them. So that's that's another great area of interest that FutureSource has identified. So I wouldn't say that excites me, but I think that that will be an increased trailing trend. I'm very excited about the fact that you might actually have much better integrated home and school uh, instructional connections where a student, you know, there's this awful ed tech buzzword of anytime, anywhere learning that just, it has no, it had no meaning. Now suddenly it might have meaning. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I, it would be great if there was an integrated way where uh, basically a teacher could say, uh, hey, you as a student, you need to work on this subject and I'm going to assign something for you that you can work with on an interactive voice speaker at home. And then it'll report back to the grade book. I mean, those are the kinds of things that excite me um, as long as we can deal with the privacy and security issues, obviously. Absolutely. It's interesting that there's there's, there's often quite a sort of a, a domino effect where these different technologies interlink. We saw in the UK, one of the most popular technology adoptions both for staff and for parents, was online parents' evenings and the ability to have that dedicated connection. It was more accessible for some parents, didn't have to be talking about their child's progress in front of their classmates' parents in the school hall. Um, But the knock-on effect, of course, from that was those sessions were often more productive because by the nature of the tools teachers were using or having to use, they had more data. They had more data reporting in terms of what the children have been doing at home, in terms of collecting that kind of progress. So it kind of served things up, which then ties back into that central school information systems about how we can aggregate data more effectively and report on it, make it more accessible. So often the benefits you see at the far end are, are interwoven to quite a few different steps in the chain, but pulling them together to be, as you refer to, more unified, I guess. There's also another uh, sort of unanticipated benefit. And again, this is anecdotal. I don't have any surveys to do it. But w- I've talked with several school districts that, um, of course, provided uh, Wi-Fi hotspots for the, for kids who didn't have good internet access and devices. And they were surprised that in some of the remote classes, the parents were also sitting in. Because especially in, uh, in, in areas where you have uh, parents who um, uh, are not necessarily totally conversant in, the, in English, if they wanted to learn English, or in, uh, in low-income households, or they're just trying to get refreshers on certain subjects, they sometimes sit in on the courses. And the educators are delighted by that because suddenly the parent is able to see what their child is learning and also benefit from it. So, I, I mean, anecdotal. Parental engagement is great. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it is more engagement. I wanted to ask you a little bit more big picture, and it was something that you referenced in, in, in your um, your article that you wrote about remote learning was one thing we talk about educational technology from uh, the sort of the measure from what we're seeing within schools. But one of the best, as I refer to the litmus tests of, of how the sector is growing, is looking at the market analysis in terms of investors and investors have a pretty good grip on where demand and growth is going to come from. And you shared some pretty interesting stats from um, Holland IQ, their trends in terms of forecasts for market growth. I wonder if you could just share a bit on that. Yeah, and I just had to pull that up because uh, I, I don't want to, you know, money is important. I don't want to get the numbers wrong. But but basically what they're finding is that um, uh, spending on education technology, and, and holding up IQ, for those who don't know, is a global market research firm. They, they look at the industry and where the money is going. And they say that the spend on ed tech will 
between 2020 and 2025 globally from $227 billion in 2020 to $404 billion in 2025. And now that sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, but it's such a small percentage of the global spend on education as a whole, including everything from labor to buildings to uh, um, analog materials. It's yeah. only 3.6% in 2020, and it's increasing to 5.2% in 2025. Now, depending on your perspective, you could say that's either too much or too little, but it's still a very low proportion of overall spend, even though it will be growing. And um, I don't see that. I think this might be a little on the low side, actually, some of these numbers and projections. I suppose we can take a positive that we're seeing there's, a, there's, a, there's an anticipated growth. I guess the, 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 the measure that still exists for many within the education space is not just the, the potential investment and growth of ed tech, but that confidence about the actual impact it can deliver and, and that narrative around being research informed, trying to move away from the, the smoke and mirrors of, you know, buy our product and this time next year, all your students will be getting, you know, 100% on every test back to really getting a sense of confidence about what technologies will actually have a long standing impact in school. I think that, you know, what's really key is that this money not just be spent on boxes and pixels. And it, it, it really does need to be spent on everything from a, a leadership vision um, and plan for technologies integration at one end uh, in schools to, um, to professional development, ongoing professional development, not just an hour here and there uh, of educators and using technology and in, in uh, you know, intelligently and appropriately, key words, intelligently and appropriately, uh, to getting parents and students involved in the planning for technology use and for the um, implementation of it and getting them to own that on their ends. All of that is critical. It's that entire sort of uh, umbrella of intelligent, appropriate use of technology in education. And we've what we've just been through and what we are still on the tail end of is a stress test of to what works and what doesn't work and so now we have to shore up what doesn't work and really accelerate what does work absolutely well to wrap things up last question for you i'm going to be very generous i'm going to hand you a magic wand frank oh boy where where would you like to see things five years from now what lessons would you like to see that have been taken forward and become embedded or move forward and you know as, as we kind of look to the future I'd like to see a lot more comfort. I guess that's perhaps the nicest way I can put it, best way I can put it, comfort with technology and education. So um, students and parents and educators don't feel like technology is independent of the work of education. But ed tech as a term disappears. That's my magic wand. Ed tech disappears. It's all education. So I'd like to see a comfort and the integration and you no longer think about whether you're using a technology for instruction or for learning. Um, what you think about is, am I learning or is the student understanding? So my magic wand would be the term education technology becomes um, archaic and a, a quaint memory <laughs> of the uh, early 21st century. That is a lovely way to wrap things up and resonates so well because I often share that when people ask about the vision of the kind of future digital classroom, it's where it's just teaching and learning and the delivery mechanism isn't something anybody really considers. And that very much aligns with that thought. So 
Thank you. And I really appreciate you sharing your insights and, and views. And it's, it's really positive to get those kind of um, that sense of where things are heading in the US. And clearly, there's lots of similarities from both sides of the Atlantic. Al, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. Take care.